Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and you're listening to Hellenistic Christendom, Philosophy for Understanding Theology. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Hellenistic Christendom. Today's episode is concerned with the subject of irony, more specifically as the concept pertains to Socrates and the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. Now, this episode is going to embark on a vast ocean of philosophical details, so I suspect anyone presently listening to this episode is either exceedingly gracious towards your present speaker and his capabilities for teaching, or that you perhaps might have some prior interest in Socrates, to which, either way, at least in this specific regard, I hope we can proceed with a mutual love for the philosopher. But Now, I've mentioned today's episode uh, concerning the concept of irony, but of course we can ask more precisely what I mean by that word, since any inquiry into a subject must, of course, begin with a definition of the subject at hand. And so then on this point, I want to provide a sort of brief spiritual meditation as philosophers, since we are already aware of the difficulty of finding definitions for subjects which contain a multiplicity of examples and varied meanings. Hence, in order to approach this subject, I want to start very small and very simple. Which otherwise, if we remember from James' epistle, specifically from chapter 3, verse 3, we read, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they can obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Well, so too then does the teacher by way of little words guide the whole bodies of individual students. We have to be careful here as teachers, since we will be judged according to the words that we have given to others. And James does well to remind us that not everyone is fit to become a teacher in this regard. Although the church father, St. Basil, nonetheless reminds us of the great reward contained in the toil of these little bits, if you will. He writes, While then I am aware that the controversy contained in little words is a very great one, in hope of the prize I do not shrink from toil, with the conviction that the discussion will both prove profitable to myself and that my hearers will be rewarded with no small benefit. Well, then the concern for the concept of irony is going to be a conversation which stretches across several historical periods. My consideration is really going to go back and forth between Socrates and Soren Kierkegaard. I'm sure no surprise there. But really more broadly, the conversation that's taking place between the ancient Greeks and Christianity. And so then once that contrast is made between Socrates and Kierkegaard, I think the listener will come to see how spiritually significant Kierkegaard's philosophical project really is. Now, as far as assistance for this uh, podcast, I am referring mostly to the scholarship of Gregory Vlastos on the philosophic method of Socrates, as well as George Rudebusch's study on Socrates, published through Wiley Blackwell. Uh, Resources otherwise for this episode uh, are coming from Soren Kierkegaard's doctoral dissertation, The Concept of Irony, which he presented and defended in accomplishment for his theology degree in 1841, which would be the equivalent to today's PhD. Uh, Yes, I have read it, and I've luckily been able to toil through it several times to get a grasp on it for today's episode in order to communicate it as succinctly and directly as I can for you. However, today is still going to otherwise require some cognitive friendship on your part, if I can say that. Now, in the preceding sections, I'm going to speak for a moment about the different parts that this lecture is going to have. First, I'm going to speak on a general definition of irony as it pertains to the philosophical use by Socrates. However, it should be noted that today's episode is going to concern more so an explanation of irony as it appears in Kierkegaard, and so I'm only going to lightly touch on Socrates since this is where the concept has its originality 
uh, its birth, if you will, and notoriety. And second, as I've already mentioned, I'm going to draw a conversation today between Socrates and Kierkegaard on the subject of irony. In doing so, we're not concerned so much with verbal or literary irony, but existential irony. And this difference will be explained in due course. But of course, before we proceed, I predict that some ears are going to tingle when they hear the words existential and Kierkegaard being used together. Well, most contemporary philosophic culture or literature readily recognizes this association with Kierkegaard and the existential, and hence will perhaps give me the much-expected amen on that point. But not so fast. I don't want my listeners to leave this episode with the mistaken understanding that I'm putting forth here a Christian philosophy of existence no less than I want them to think that Kierkegaard is offering anything similar. My point for organizing this episode in this fashion that I'm doing it is because I think Kierkegaard is getting at something really important when he speaks of subjects like irony, the comic, the tragic, passion, reflection, and immediacy. And hence, I myself am only curious to see how these actually relate to life views or how these concepts and terms really pertain towards a development in or towards the religious life. Therefore, to summarize, we are concerned with the concept of irony as it is understood to occur in Socrates and in Kierkegaard. Seems seems easy enough. Otherwise, I should ask that you forgive me beforehand if I ever lose you in abstract language. I'm using Kierkegaard's own words most of the time, and hence you'll find me repeating some of the same things in order to speak in variations of really virtually one main point, to which this will all become clear as we proceed. Well, first, let's start with a definition. The Roman educator Quintilian who lived and wrote in the later part of the first century. According to his Institutio Oratorica, he says that irony is that figure of speech in which something contrary to what is said is to be understood. Now, much later in 1755, Samuel Johnson in his Dictionary of the English Language, which, if you know your memes, Google his name and you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. He says that irony is the mode of speech in which the meaning is contrary to the words. Furthermore, a more up-to-date definition by Webster's Dictionary remains consistent in defining irony as the use of words to express something other than, and especially the opposite, of their literal meaning. Now, if we are suggesting that irony is an instance where an individual says one thing, but means another, isn't this really just a kind of lying? Well, not exactly, since the literal intention of a false claim, a lie, is what is intended in lying, whereas an irony What is intended is a recognized contradiction between one's meaning and one's words. So, Gregory Vlastos gives the example of a thief who comes across a ring whose stone he knows to be fake and yet still tries to sell it anyway. Now, this wouldn't precisely be ironic unless we could imagine a scenario wherein the thief's intentionality at a deception was recognized in another context. Suppose the thief had a naive 10-year-old daughter whom he tried, with a certain glint in his eye, to ask, Hello, love. Can I interest you in a diamond ring? Now, this we could call ironic, since the girl is ten, and not, say, five, where the little girl would have sufficiently understood that if the ring were truly valuable, then her father would not have been willingly handing it over. In other words, the point here is that irony often involves an intentionality of speech, often for the sake of humor, that has a recognized contradiction between one's meaning and one's speech. However, we can agree that whenever someone is trying to be ironic, and yet their statement nonetheless resides in a riddle or an obscurity, since after all, irony is such a broad term, there is the possibility of a misunderstanding taking place between two conversants. Now, 
From here, let's take a step back and work our way upward, back to where we were, so that we can provide some better historical background for context. Now, in ancient Greece, our word for irony in English had its basis in three Greek words, ironeia, iron, and ironumia. Now, in classical Greek, ironia was initially referred to as a term of abuse. Plato actually uses it in his dialogue, The Laws, to refer to penalties for heretics, and moreover, towards the so-called impostors of Socrates' arch-rivals in the dialogue The Sophist, which Plato refers to these impostors as irones. Now, the reason why this is important is because we actually notice a passage from Plato's Republic. And if you have a copy nearby, it's roughly near 33 or 337a, where Thrasmachus, a Sophist philosopher of Greece, says to Socrates, quote, I told the others that you would never let yourself be questioned, but go on shaming ignorance and do anything other than give a straight answer. Now, that word in Greek for sham uh, refers to eroneia, which suggests that if the translation of irony here were to be uh, taken what it means today, then lying would be included in the definition of irony. Well, now, since lying is not included in the definition of irony, which is what Socrates is being accused of here, namely that he hasn't answered these questions when he claims that he doesn't, our translation of eroneia here to our English irony is not entirely justified. Now, the scholarship of Gregory Vlastos goes on to show rather extensively how irony has developed as a Hellenistic concept. And ah, Hellenistic, that name sounds familiar. I really should probably blow a horn every time I say the name of the podcast or do something special at least. <laughs> but um, where was I? Uh, oh yes, the term irony came more succinctly to take up a new meaning under the philosophic paradigm, so to call it, of Plato and Socrates. Interestingly, it wasn't until the Latin Roman authors began to transliterate Greek, particularly Cicero, for eroneia to ironia. So we have the Greek spelling, which is E-I-R-O-N-E-I-A, and then we have the Latin Roman spelling, which is a little bit more closer to the English. It's I-R-O-N-I-A. Now, from the oratory addresses of Cicero, the term... Uh, the term irony came to take up new significance for elegance and good taste. He writes, quote, In this irony and dissimulation, Socrates, in my opinion, far excelled all others in charm and humanity. Furthermore, Quintilian, who I mentioned earlier, the Roman educator that was mentioned before, further built on Cicero's understanding of ironia and solidified its use for the art of public speaking or rhetoric. So summarily then, that ironia the Latin spelling of it, came to mean a form of speech which used to express a meaning that runs contrary to what is said, or really what Vlastos calls the perfect medium for mockery innocent of deceit. So now then that we've covered a, a sort of brief definitional basis for irony, let's step a little bit further into Socrates to see where exactly um, irony has its place in his overall philosophical method. One distinctive feature of the Socratic method, as we so often hear it be called, is this notion of elenchus, which is a Greek word that refers to Socrates' sort of famous method of refutation. Gregory Vlastos provides a rough sketch definition of elenchus that can help us frame the discussion. He says that Socratic elenchus is a search for moral truth by question and answer adversary argument in which a thesis is debated only if asserted as the answerer's own belief and is regarded as refuted only if its negation is deduced from his own beliefs. So first and foremost then, for Vlastos as well as for Socrates, Elenchus refers to search. In other words, Elenchus does not merely 
refer to refutation as an end for itself, but rather more as having to do with searching or inquiring about the truth. That is, for Socrates, examination or searching for truth is philosophy. But really, the truth about what? Well, certainly truth itself, but not truth about this or that thing, but primarily a search for truth in the moral domain. Now, from here, worth commenting is how the Socratic Alenchus uh, differs throughout the earlier dialogues of Plato, where Socrates appears more as a moral philosopher. And then, of course, contrasted with the middle dialogues of Plato, where Socrates appears more as a metaphysician. Now, the use of Alenchus in the middle dialogues, such as the Meno, regarding the doctrine of recollection, this tends to serve more of a negative function, in that it is used for correcting mistakes rather than supplanting any positive teaching on Socrates' part. Furthermore, this negative aspect of Socratic teaching is going to be a key word that's going to play a larger role throughout the rest of this episode, so don't forget it. When we get into Soren Kierkegaard, which we're about to hear in a second, we'll see how irony pertains to what he calls the negative. So then besides that, since we have this foreground of Socrates understood, I'd like to transition now into Kierkegaard's interpretation of the Socratic method and how irony appears not only as a verbal literary device, but as an existential category that Socrates found himself in. So that is to say... I want to explore now various claims by Kierkegaard that talks about how uh, Socratic irony is negative and also how ironic existence is a contradiction, either with one foot in the comic or the other in the tragic, though not two-footed and firm upon the ground as oneself as existing as a single individual. Now, this is actually going to be my favorite part to cover, but it also happens to be the most difficult. So I want to start with very basic steps since Kierkegaard does tend to speak in seemingly contradictory or paradoxical sort of ways. So, well, so for example, in his uh, journals in 1845, he provides a succinct definition of irony. He writes, quote, Irony is a combination of ethical passion, which in inwardness infinitely accentuates one's own I, and of education, which outwardly, in one's personal relations, infinitely abstracts from one's own I. Now, I'm going to use this as my standard definition of irony and explain it in various ways as it appears in Kierkegaard's authorship. So if that totally went over your head, do not fret. Uh, but interesting, that, that's what I found most amazing about Kierkegaard. Actually, I want to comment on that real quick. First of all, I never thought I would read uh, Kierkegaard's doctoral dissertation, The Content of Irony, because I never thought I would fully understand it. To my surprise, however, not only did I understand a good bit, but I actually was almost surprised to come to find out that Kierkegaard really wrote about all of these things in indirect ways all throughout his life. I guess to put it another way, it's almost apparent to see from the totality of Kierkegaard's authorship that he really only wrote about one thing, which, as he says in his postscript and in his book, uh, Point of View for My Work as an Author, specifically he wrote about the problem of what it means to become a Christian. So then, let's speak of irony through the back door, uh, through a backdoor understanding by looking more intently at the religious function of irony in the authorship. In Kierkegaard's book, The Point of View for My Work as an Author, it was published after his death actually in 1859, although he wrote in 1848, he confronts the issue of how it remains inexplicable as to how it could occur to a religious author to employ aesthetics in such a way. Well, the answer that Kierkegaard gives to this is somewhat more grounded in his overall view of evangelical psychology, if we could give such a procedure a name. Some pages on, he writes that this is the secret of the art of helping others. 
Anyone who has not mastered this is himself deluded when he proposes to help others. In order to help another effectively, I must understand more than he. Yet first of all, surely I must understand what he understands. If I do not know that, my greater understanding will be of no help to him. If I do not know that, my greater understanding will be of no... Oh, wait, I just repeated that. (laughs) If, however, I am disposed to plume myself on my greater understanding, it is because I am vain or proud, so that at bottom, instead of benefiting him, I want to be admired. But all true effort to help begins with self-humiliation. The helper must first humble himself. Under him he uh, would help. And therewith understand that to help does not mean to be a sovereign, but to be a servant. That to help does not mean to be ambitious, but to be patient. That to help means to endure for the time being the imputation that one is in the wrong, and does not understand what the other understands. Succinctly he states, Kierkegaard, that serious and stern as you are, if you cannot humble yourself, you are not genuinely serious. Be the amazed listener who sits and hears what the other finds the more delight in telling you, because you listen with amazement. But above all, do not forget one thing, the purpose you have in mind, the fact that it is the religious you must bring forward. Now, we have Kierkegaard's intentions laid explicitly out that the entire purpose of his authorship is to bring forth the religious. Well, how exactly does he do this? Well, first, Kierkegaard recognizes that some individuals live in a delusion that they are Christians. One of the main reasons for this is that these individuals remain in certain existence categories which are bound to sensual desires, to what is immediately before their eyes, or what Kierkegaard succinctly calls an aesthetic existence. Now, it may be interesting or help for remembering that aesthetic comes from a Greek word that means to perceive, or that aesthetic objects refer to things that are perceptible objects, or simply just things that are apparent to the senses. Hence, this is what Kierkegaard means when he says that some individuals live in immediacy, or sensuous immediacy, or erotic immediacy, even if you will, because these individuals are typically only concerned with what is externally and immediately present to them by way of the senses. Well, now, since Kierkegaard recognizes that his authorship is concerned with the problem of becoming a Christian, he knows that this project is going to entail one as a sort of missionary. However, he admits that a missionary to Christians is going to look a lot different than a missionary to heathens. In fact, as he even says uh, through the pseudonymous author Johannes Climacus in his book, The Concluding Unscientific Postscript, quote, It is easier to become a Christian if I am not a Christian than to become a Christian if I am one. Hence, Kierkegaard, in his addressing of the deluded Christians of Christendom, so he calls it, he thought it best to begin in a sort of incognito way by disguising himself through the aesthetic pseudonymous authorship. He writes, So then the religious author, whose all-absorbing thought is how one is to become a Christian, starts off rightly in Christendom as an aesthetic author, as Kierkegaard says in his point of view for my work as an author uh, that I referred to earlier. Now, as far as we've been describing it, we have something similar to the ironic project of Socrates. Now, just as Kierkegaard was setting out to resolve, through irony, the problem of what it means to become a Christian, and that individuals were not really Christians as they so claimed, so too was Socrates, through irony, setting out to resolve the problem of what it means to have knowledge, and that individuals really didn't have knowledge as they so claimed. Now, 
Even more so is the similar procedure by which the two employ irony against their opponents. We remember that Kierkegaard harbored the advice that the secret to the art of helping others was to understand more than the interlocutor, but to also understand the interlocutor from where they are. Notice that Kierkegaard says that to be a teacher does not mean simply to affirm that such a thing is so, or to deliver a lecture, etc. He says, no, to be a teacher in the right sense is to be a learner. Now, remember when Socrates often performed this similar procedure of self-humiliation? You, you can see this most famously in the dialogue Euthyphro, uh, where a sort of theologian named Euthyphro has brought his father to the law courts as a murderer, and he actually runs into Socrates in the process. Euthyphro says, They say that for a son to prosecute his father as a murderer is unholy. How ill they know divinity in its relation, Socrates, to what is holy or unholy. Socrates responds, But you, by heaven, Euthyphro, you think that you have such an accurate knowledge of things divine and what is holy and unholy, and circumstances such as you describe, to accuse your father? And Euthyphro responds, Why, Socrates, if I did not have an accurate knowledge of all that, I should be good for nothing. And Euthyphro would be no different from the general run of men. And then Socrates, ironically putting himself below Euthyphro, he says, Well then, admirable Euthyphro, the best thing I can do is to become your pupil and challenge Miletus before the trial comes on. Let me tell him in the past that I have considered it of great importance to know about things divine, and that now... When he asserts that I erroneously put forward my own notions and inventions on this head, I have become your pupil. So essentially what's taking place here is that both Euthyphro and Socrates are awaiting their turns to appear before the law courts regarding their respective accusations. Socrates, at this point in his life, had just come to hear of the unfortunate news of Miletus, the name of his accuser, bringing the false accusations towards Socrates that he was corrupting the youth by teaching about false gods. Hence, Socrates in this scene is depicted alongside Euthyphro, who is, a theo- uh, who is a theologian, whose accurate knowledge of divine things could possibly help him in his case. Now, one element of irony here is this factor of self-humiliation that's taking place between alleged teacher and learner. That really, at the start of the inquiry, the teacher is initially the learner, the one with the greater understanding. However, Socratic irony pertains to what Kierkegaard called the negative, insofar as Socrates' presumption that he knew nothing likewise was the case with other individuals who knew nothing. Therefore, this negation can sometimes appear as a nothing, where the dialogues can end in aporeia, which is a Greek word meaning puzzle or confusion. Hence, the euthyphro has been considered as a part of the aporetic dialogues, since these dialogues end in confusion, in ambiguity, or what Kierkegaard succinctly calls the negative. Now, let's look at Kierkegaard's comments more specifically on a couple of Plato's dialogues to better understand this aspect of negation. In Kierkegaard's doctoral dissertation, The Concept of Irony, he explores this concept of negation in some detail by looking at Socrates' conception of the nature of the soul. He initially starts with the dialogues Phaedo and the Symposium, where he says, The first presents the philosopher in death, and the second, the symposium, presents the philosopher in life. Starting first with the Phaedo, which takes place after Socrates already gave his defense, and this dialogue is now a recollection from friends about their last moments with Socrates before he drank the poison. 
and so in this dialogue, Socrates begins with the initial inquiry on what it is meant by the philosopher, or excuse me, on what is meant by the philosopher's wish to die. Now, if it is the case that the soul is separated from the body after death, and furthermore, if it is true that genuine knowledge depends upon an abstraction from sense perceptions towards the ideas or forms, which are never essentially present to us, then it seems that the philosopher wishes to have little to do with the body. As Kierkegaard says, indeed, they are bound to wish to be purified by death and freed from the foolishness of the body in order to complete what they have already sought to do here in life, which is to hunt down the pure essence of things with pure thought. Now, Kierkegaard clarifies uh, Socrates' view of the soul, which suggests that the soul is understood here just as abstractly as the pure essence of the things that are the object of its activity. Hence, the sort of problem arises for Socrates that in order to become really congruent with its object, the soul in its cognitive activity must become nothing to the same degree. Now, when examining the characteristics of irony in Socrates, Kierkegaard is suggesting that there is something far more existential going on than something specifically intellectual, abstract, or verbal. Kierkegaard says that irony and speculation have their points of conjunction. Specifically, that irony is that which raises the individual up by means of reflection, speculation, inquiring, searching, philosophizing, but then abandons them after so long, to leave them drifting on their own, if you will. So to give you an example, Socrates mentions in the Apology that he will also proceed in the afterlife, interrogating those who claim to be wise when they are not. Hence, this suggests that irony can be seen here in its divine infinitude, Kierkegaard says, since it allows nothing whatsoever to endure. Furthermore, like Samson, Socrates grasps the pillars of knowledge and tumbles everything down into the nothingness of ignorance. Hence, when Socrates utilizes irony to subject individuals to humiliation, wherein they appear to really know nothing, or are not wise where they claim to be, Socrates' assumption that wise men know nothing is an assumption that comes transferred to Socrates' own essential personality. That is, the sort of negation, or contradiction if you will, that takes place between what an individual says or means thus transfers to the individual themselves, whereby they become negative. In other words, every philosophy that begins with the presupposition naturally ends with the same presupposition. As Kierkegaard writes on page 37 of The Concept of Irony, quote, Just as Socrates' philosophy began with the presupposition that he knew nothing, so it ended with the presupposition that human beings knew nothing at all. Platonic philosophy began in the immediate unity of thought and being and stayed there. Furthermore, Kierkegaard observes that, quote, to ask questions, that is, the abstract relation between the subjective and the objective, ultimately became the primary issue for Socrates. Now, Moving further, in the Phaedo, Socrates asks if it is not in the course of reflection, if at all, that the soul gets a clear view of facts. That is, uh, reflection for Socrates has a continual ascent, says Kierkegaard, which mounts higher and higher above the atmospheric air until breathing almost stops in the pure ether of the abstract. Therefore, reflection for the ironic individual is often to remain in the abstraction of pure thought, which, although they are bound by the lower sense perceptions, the ironic individual cannot obtain them perfectly, or with purity, if you will. 
So we can see this kind of negation and abstraction by looking also at the symposium. The dialogue here describes a drinking party with Socrates and friends, Agathon, Aristophanes, Diotima, and others, on the nature of eros, or love. Kierkegaard reviews the various positions of this dialogue and then comments on Socrates' argument about whether love is by nature a love of something or love of nothing. Now, notice that Kierkegaard has shifted the focus of irony from the speculative, reflective point of view to the now erotic, seductive point of view. So he's, on the one hand, looking at irony as it concerns speculation, because he's saying that these two coincide or collide with one another. And then we have irony as it pertains to love or to erotic immediacy, to seduction, if you will. Now, Socrates appears as the last speaker in the dialogue before he is corrected by Diotima, a female philosopher. While the other speakers before Socrates spoke of love in its accidental, concrete ways, namely for love for this or that thing, Socrates spoke of a love for something which it does not have, and this refers to desire or longing. Now, Kierkegaard admits that this is true in one sense of love, but however, in another sense, love is infinite love. For example, when we say that God is love, we are saying that he is infinitely self-communicating. When we speak of continuing in love, we are speaking of participation in a fullness. And this, Kierkegaard says, is the substance of love. Conversely, um, Kierkegaard says, desiring and longing are the negative in love, or imminent negativity. That is, desire, want, yearning, and longing are love's infinite subjectivizing, to use a Hegelian phrase. This abstraction of love towards a nothing has a totally empty designation. Socrates starts with the most concrete and then ends in the most abstract. Hence, where the inquiry is supposed to begin at the most abstract, he stops. Kierkegaard writes, The conclusion he comes to is actually the indefinable qualification of pure being. Love is. Because the addendum, that is, the longing, the desire, etc., is no definition, since it is merely a relation to a something that is not given. Now, from here, I'd like to take a brief recap and bring everything together to see how Kierkegaard relates Hegel's concept of negation to Socrates. And from here, I'll actually quote a passage from part one of the concept of irony in full to try and make this a bit clear. Kierkegaard writes to quote, To ask questions denotes in part the individual's relation to the subject, in part the individual's relation to another individual. In the first case, it is an effort to free the phenomenon from any finite relation to the individual. Now, by phenomenon, Kierkegaard is referring to something as it appears to our sense perceptions. By saying that the goal of asking questions is to free the phenomenon from any finite relations, is to detach the individual from impure, or that is to say, inf uh, finite ways of knowledge that are confined to the body, to the ways of knowing through sense perceptions. So Kierkegaard goes on, Inasmuch as I ask a question, I know nothing, and am related altogether receptively to my subject. In this sense, Socratic questioning is clearly, even though remotely, analogous to the negative in Hegel, except that the negative, according to Hegel, is a necessary element in thought itself. It is a determinate ad intra, or inwardly, that's what that means. In Plato, the negative is made graphic and placed outside the object in the inquiring individual. Furthermore, Kierkegaard says, in Hegel, the thought does not need to be questioned from the outside, for it asks and answers itself within itself. In Plato, thought answers only insofar as it is questioned, but whether or not it is questioned is accidental, 
and how it is questioned is not less accidental. In the second case, the relation of the individual to another individual, the subject is an accident, or excuse me, the subject is an account to be settled between the one asking and the one answering. And the thought development fulfills itself in this rocking gait, in this limping to both sides. So to finish, Kierkegaard writes, If what has been said so far is accurate, then it is manifest that the intention in asking questions can be twofold. That is, one can ask with the intention of receiving an answer, contained the desired fullness, and hence the more one asks, the deeper and more significant becomes the answer. Or one can ask without any interest in the answer except to suck out the apparent content by means of the question and thereby to leave an emptiness behind. So the first view of questioning, that of Hegel, presupposes fullness or plenitude, and this first view has its method uh, as speculation. The second view of questioning, that of Socrates, presupposes that of emptiness. The second view has its method instead as irony. However, the point of Kierkegaard's goal is to show how these two views of questioning have their respective differences, but nonetheless collide on the agreement that when all is said and done, the individual knows nothing whatsoever. Well, what does all this mean? Well, irony for Kierkegaard always involves a contradiction. Socratic irony tried to show the contradiction between phenomenon, as things appear, and the idea, or the form, or the thing in itself. And a Kierkegaard even appear, uh, appeals to the German phrase, Ding an sick, which means thing in itself, or being in itself, excuse me. However, Kierkegaard suggests that modern philosophy has really killed both the phenomenon and the idea by suggesting that the two don't really correspond with one another. Modern philosophy sees both views as correct, that idea destructs the phenomenon and vice versa, since the two are really only found within one another, that is, the idea and the phenomenon being bound up with one another. Hence, in this destruction of both phenomenon and idea, the ironic individual lives a carefree existence where they can remain in abstracted, idealistic, speculative existence. Hence, the ironist tends to live poetically amidst speculation, reflection, and thought, since for the ironist, thought and being are one. As Kierkegaard writes about immediacy in his journals, quote, most people now live somewhat reflectively and therefore do nothing in pure immediacy, but dabble in immediacy and reflection. He wrote that in 1844. However, irony has a kind of antithesis with actuality or real existence, particularly historical actuality. What this means is that history, or actuality really, has two relations to individuals partly as a gift that refuses to be rejected, and partly as a task that wants to be fulfilled. In other words, Kierkegaard is suggesting that actuality, or existence as a gift, implies that the individual has a past which cannot be overlooked or ignored. For irony, that is for Socrates, there never really was a past. After all, all true knowledge, according to Socrates, is a recollecting or remembering of the past, of one's pre-existence as a disembodied soul wherein one's individual personality becomes more and more negative as they grow or progress in knowledge or in education. And this is why Kierkegaard says in several places that some individuals who live in this similar pagan or negative kind of existence become infinitely more and more lighter, being forgotten ultimately as they get older towards a progressive knowledge of the truth. Now, for irony, Kierkegaard writes, there never really was a past. This was due to its refusal to be involved 
involved in metaphysical inquiries. It confused the eternal eye with the temporal eye. But the eternal eye has no past, and as a result, the temporal eye does not have one either. But to the extent that irony is good-natured enough to assume a past, this past must be of such a nature that irony can have a free hand with it and play its game with it. In other words, the ironist relates to historical actuality in an approximate, sort of idealized sense. This is why the Greeks found favor with the mythical part of history, legend and fairy tales, since they were not able to relate their essential, actual personalities, their I, to historical actuality. And now I'd like to comment uh, some more on this feature of irony as negation of one's pers uh, essential personality by looking at how Kierkegaard relates uh, this to poetic existence. So now, so far we have spoken about how irony involves a kind of contradiction. And I'd like to speak further on this contradiction and how it relates to what Kierkegaard calls living poetically or having a poetic existence. Kierkegaard succinctly states two kinds of life views with regard to this poetic existence. He writes in part two of his concept of irony, quote, Indeed, it is one thing to compose oneself poetically. It is something else to be composed poetically. The Christian lets himself be poetically composed. And in this respect, a simple Christian lives far more poetically than any brilliant intellectual. But also, the person who in the Greek sense poetically composes himself recognizes that he has been given a task. Therefore, it is very urgent for him to become conscious of what is original in him. And this originality is the boundary within which he poetically composes, within which he is poetically free. Thus, the individuality has an objective that is its absolute objective, and its activity is aimed precisely at the fulfillment of this objective and the enjoyment of itself in and with this fulfillment. That is, its activity to become, for itself, what it is in itself. And I'm going to keep reading just a bit longer. Quote, But just as commonplace people do not have any in itself, but can become anything, so also the ironist has none. He stands above his whole environment. But in order to really live poetically, really and thoroughly to be able to create himself poetically, the ironist must have no in itself. Therefore, the ironist frequently becomes nothing, because what is not true for God is true for man. That is, out of nothing, nothing comes. But the ironist continually preserves his poetic freedom. And when he notices that he is becoming nothing, he concludes, or excuse me, he includes this in his poeticizing. And as is well known, it is part and parcel of the poetic poses and positions in life that irony promoted. Indeed, to become nothing at all is the most superior of them all. So let me explain this another way. Um, as to how poetic existence relates to irony. In 1844, Kierkegaard explicitly mentions in his journals that he became acquainted with Aristotle's works through tr uh, Trendelenburg's. Trind Am I saying that right? Yeah. He became acquainted with Aristotle's works through Trendelenburg's new translation of De Anima, uh, which in Latin means on the soul. It was translated in 1833. Now, what had considerable influence on Kierkegaard was this principle he acquired throughout Gotthold Lessing's essay on the proof of the spirit and of power, which was written in 1777, uh, which regarded this concept of the transition of something into another class. So specifically, this provided the groundwork for Johannes Climacus's view of the inconsumerability of the relation between the finite and the infinite, or what has come to be known as the doctrine of the leap and of the paradox, which is a decisive role uh, for faith. Now, throughout all of this, 
Kierkegaard came to see congruence between his view of repetition, which I'll talk about in another episode, and Aristotle's discussion in the third part of the third book of De Anima, that the imagination or the perceptual faculty is a frequent source of our own errors. And it's this notion of error that Kierkegaard would frequent throughout some of his pseudonymous works to make contradistinctions with Hegelianism and the Danish neo-Hegelianism of J.L. Heidberg and Bishop Martinson, for example. Now, notice Kierkegaard's comments on Aristotle's view that contemplation leads to happiness. Quote, he says in the journals, It is readily seen here that Aristotle has not understood this self deeply enough. For only in the aesthetic sense does contemplative thought have an intellecti. And the felicity of the gods does not reside in contemplation, but in eternal communication. Aristotle has not perceived the qualification of spirit. Therefore, he recommends even external goods, although only as an accompaniment, a drapery. But at this point, he lacks the category for making a consummating movement. Now, Kierkegaard is making an observation which slices Greek intellectualism at its core. In other words, Kierkegaard's philosophical project can be seen as using primarily Aristotelian influences to draw upon his own creative concepts. For example, Kierkegaard can almost be seen as baptizing the concepts of potentiality, actuality, and necessity with regards to motion. Notice that Climacus, in Concluding Unscientific Postscript, writes, The transition from potentiality to actuality is, as Aristotle rightly teaches, a movement. This cannot at all be expressed in or understood from the language of abstraction, as this cannot give movement to time or space, which presupposes it, or which is presupposed. It is a halting a leap. Now, as Cornelio Fabro explains, the reason for this is that existence confers time on movement, and when movement is limited in time, the leap results, so that something can appear, something which is to become. This is clearly seen at the ethical stage, where the risk, the decision to choose the good, and the reward are far from intangible to human wisdom. That is why the transition is clearly like a break, indeed almost to suffering. Well, what does all this mean and have to do with our discussion of poetry? Well, essentially what is being argued here is that Kierkegaard believes man is a synthesis or a unity of body and soul. Furthermore, that finite human beings are composed of actuality and potentiality. An existent human being possesses actuality insofar as the individual is said to be. However, the individual is bound by time and hence not able to experience the fullness of their being all at once. Therefore, the human being is also composed of potentialities, which are actualized or realized as maturation uh, or activity basically takes place. For example, a human being is not fully actual in the sense that all activities uh, or matured stages of their life are realized all at once. They still nonetheless possess potentialities to become something. And put another way, man is composed of matter which Aristotle relates to potentiality, and form, which Aristotle relates to actuality. And this is another way of suggesting that human beings are composed of body and soul. Body just relating to those categories of matter and potentiality, and soul relating to those categories of form and actuality. And it's just really a philosophically fancy way of saying that man is a synthesis of both being, actuality, and becoming, potentiality. But of course, more significantly, Kierkegaard suggests that we are body and soul in time, which means that our potentialities are being realized or actualized through a succession or movement of moments. 
These moments contain what Kierkegaard calls the fullness of time, which is a phrase that he's borrowing from Galatians 4 and speaking about Christ. But in other words, the individual is not to be sought in these successive stages of becoming that occur throughout their lives, but the individual is rather to be sought in the moment, what Kierkegaard calls the eternal otherwise. In other words, Kierkegaard talks about individuality emerging when there is a dual synthesis between temporality eternity and finitude and infinitude, which Kierkegaard separates as the first and second synthesis. So the first synthesis is the uniting of temporality and eternality, and the second synthesis refers to the unition of finitude and infinitude. And Kierkegaard says that they're actually really the same thing, but they just differ conceptually. Basically what's being said is that the finite individual reconciles their eternal eye with their temporal eye, but only by acknowledging that they are being constructed upward in infinitude. And this is when the individual is said to have become spirit. Now Kierkegaard is essentially saying that irony is one of those first steps that one takes in a philosophy of life in order to become spirit or to progress towards the religious more generally. Now let's remember that definition we gave at the beginning of the lecture. Namely, that irony is a combination of ethical passion, which in inwardness infinitely accentuates one's own I, and of education, which outwardly, in one's personal relations, infinitely abstracts from one's own I. Now, we remember that the direction of Socrates' questioning was for truth primarily in the moral domain. Hence, we can see the element of ethical passion that concerns irony. The ironist is often not a whimless fellow with no rhyme or reason to their actions, but rather the, that the ironist poetically composes themselves so that their lives lose all sense of continuity. As Kierkegaard writes in the concept, quote, he succumbs completely to mood. His life is nothing but moods. Furthermore, he poeticizes everything, poeticizes his moods too. In order genuinely to be free, he must have control of his moods. Therefore, one mood must instantly be succeeded by another. If it so happens that his moods succeed one another so nonsensically that even he notices that things are not going quite right, he poeticizes. He poeticizes that it is himself who evokes the mood. He poeticizes until he becomes so intellectually paralyzed that he stops poeticizing. Thus, the mood itself has no reality for the ironist, and he seldom vents his mood except in the form of contrast. Now, furthermore, with this similar ethical passion, the ironist inwardly, infinitely accentuates one's own I. This means that the ironist conceives of their own essential personality as an abstract possibility, namely an infinite plenitude of existence possibilities. Their life is something like a poetic fiction. It could be whatever they like it to be. Therefore, this inward movement of inwardness likewise translates to one's external situation in their personal relationships as well, where one's I is again poeticized or abstracted indefinitely. Thus, Kierkegaard regards their being as essentially two kinds of individuals, those who are spirit and those who are spiritless. Now, to be sure, Kierkegaard fundamentally asserts that man is spirit, which is more importantly to say that man is a synthesis or that man is a unity of the finite and the infinite, the eternal and the temporal, the potential and the actual. However, those individuals who are spiritless are not those who are without a concept of spirit, but are those individuals 
whose existence resides in poetic constructions and not letting themselves be developed before God as spirit. However, since the ironic individual is composed of contrasting moods, there must always be a bond which ties these contrasts together, a principle which he actually gained inspiration from Plato. As Kierkegaard writes, there must be a unity in which the enormous dissonances of these moods resolve themselves, and furthermore that upon closer inspection one will reveal this unity in the ironist. Boredom is the only continuity the ironist has. Now this is a really significant point that I don't want to miss. Kierkegaard says that boredom is precisely the negative unity admitted into a personal consciousness, wherein the opposites vanish. Now, on this point of boredom, Kierkegaard succinctly states that we can perceive here how irony continues to be totally negative in that, for example, with, uh, within the realm of theory, it establishes a misrelation between idea and actuality, between actuality and idea, and in the realm of practice, between possibility and actuality, between actuality and possibility, says Kierkegaard. The ironic individual lives not as a synthesis between idea and actuality in theory because their essential personality is obscured or hidden from themselves or others. The ironic individual furthermore lives not as a synthesis between possibility and actuality in practice because they are only pulled between contrasting moods. Now, do you remember the opening sections of Kierkegaard's Either Or Part 1? in the Diepsalmata, where he accentuates these contrasting moods even further. In the concept of irony, Kierkegaard suggests that romanticist and ironist could really refer to the same thing, although they differ conceptually. Uh, what this means is that the ironic as well as romantic individual both are caught between contrasting moods. Take some examples from the Diepsalmata. Um, through the pseudonymous author Victor Eremita, Kierkegaard writes, I have the courage, I believe, to doubt everything. I have the courage, I believe, to fight with everything, but I have not the courage to know anything, not the courage to possess, to own anything. Furthermore, how barren is my soul and thought, and yet forever tortured by empty birth pangs, sensual and tormenting. Must my spirit then ever remain tongue-tied? Must I always babble? And also another passage writes, No time of life is so beautiful as the early days of love, when with every meeting, every glance, one fetches something new, home to rejoice over. And finally, to use the last one, life has become a bitter drink to me, and yet I must take it like medicine, slowly, drop by drop. Now, the point of the Diepsalmata is to show the various contrasting moods of the romantic individual as well as the ironic individual. Uniquely, what fundamentally binds them together, says Kierkegaard, is boredom. The negative individual doesn't want, in a sense, to actually become nothing, but only idealistically to become nothing. Thereby, they are contrasted back and forth continually by various moods, one succeeded by another and having no footing within themselves, to remain still amidst fluttering and changing externalities. So then let me conclude this section by clarifying that Kierkegaard is not criticizing irony, but is actually saying that irony really ought to be at the beginnings of one's philosophy of life. As he writes in his journals in 1836, life's irony must of necessity be, at, be most at home in the child in the age of imagination. Irony is an important procedure that takes place when an individual partakes in the negation of irony to accentuate their individuality, that is, embarking on the contrast between idea and reality, possibility and actuality. However, Socratic irony tends to 
finitize the relation between subject and object. So namely, what Kierkegaard urges for is a double negation of the self, not infinitude, but in infinitude, which means that the individual's own I is not residing or remaining in abstraction or within ideality, but is doubly negated in abstraction towards historical actuality instead. This proposes the Christian alternative that the individual is not dissolved within the consummation of thought and being, but rather the individual and the rest of the human race have a qualified relation to one another. What does that mean? Well, in speaking of the human individual in this kind of way, Kierkegaard is doing away with a critical idealism and speculative philosophy that removes the individual from the all-encompassing dissolution of the I with the world spirit, which is a kind of philosophy of eminence that Hegel purported. When Kierkegaard does away with the abstractions of, Hedeg uh, of Hegelianism and the negative unity of thought in Socrates, he is paving the way for a Christian philosophy of existence which allows for the integrated concepts of original sin, redemption, repentance, guilt, atonement, and so forth. In order for these concepts to have realized meanings for the individual, the human being cannot reside in idealized abstractions that remove them from their own historical actuality. The existential individual must relate themselves as essentially related to the past in order that their contrasting continuity of moods is broken with a resolution of the will to orient oneself forward to eternity. And this Kierkegaard calls repentance. Now, in future episodes, I'll certainly touch on on these subjects and all those sort of abstract languages in a little more detail. Especially, I want to talk a little bit more about the character of poetry in Kierkegaard's thought, uh, how, ide uh, how ideality and actuality relate to his um, to this conversation, and its relevance to evaluating further existence possibilities, because I want to get into that further. So to me, then, this analysis is really quite significant because there's a sense in which it's really hard to unsee <laughs> this sort of thing once it's been really fully explained to you. Um, because you really begin to see how individuals compose themselves as poetic fictions, not relating their essential personality before God as a unified self. And so it's interesting to see the ways in which this kind of Socratic negation appears all throughout literature, all throughout television, and all throughout the people that we meet um, that are plagued by a kind of secularist, pagan, spiritless form of existence, wherein they don't exist as unified selves before God, in that their selfhood is constructed poetically, if you will, um, by God, but they rather develop themselves negatively, in finitude, in abstraction, in thought, in ideality. And in this way, their coming to realize themselves is only a progression along a timeline where they sit between birth and death, such as to say that the pagan or the spiritless view of existence is to view one's individual personality on this continuum or axis of a sort of linear view of life, where one is progressing from young age to old age and eventually to death. But Kierkegaard says that irony needs to have an aspect of a double negation, where the individual negates themselves or their essential personality, not in finitude, but in infinitude, so that they don't regard their death as something that's sort of up and coming, but that their death is presently actualized, because the reason for this is that they have unified their temporal eye their self, that is, and their eternal I, which is to say that becoming an eternalized self means that one possesses in full actuality one's existence as a Christian. That is, one has kind of already presently attained what 
one is becoming, so to speak. And so one has to live as if one's death, death, as if one's death is already actually present within oneself. And by doing so, you make a resolute break with the past. In other words, you essentially relate to the past as past. Whereas Socrates or a sort of spiritless pagan existence would try to reinvent itself or if you will, forget itself through this remembering, this recollection of the truth. And so Kierkegaard proposes an alternative view, not of recollection, but of repetition and willing oneself forward in the truth towards eternity. And so I'll get probably in some more detail as to that recollection, repetition distinction, but I do have episodes otherwise that touch on it uh, in some detail. And I think if you go some episodes down, you can see how I relate repetition and recollection to a conversation in pornography. So that should be pretty interesting. But otherwise, this is the end of um, my lecture on Socratic irony as it relates to Soren Kierkegaard. I'm going to make some more episodes. So forgive me if this didn't make any sense whatsoever, but I tried my best to explain some minimal details as to how the concept appears in at least Kierkegaard's doctoral dissertation and how it appears somewhat minimally uh, with regards to Kierkegaard's theory of poetry, if you will. Um, but yeah, otherwise, thank you so much. God bless you for retaining the time and the attention to make it to the end of this episode. Um, be sure to check out everything else I have uh, published on WordPress, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and some other places I'm probably missing, missing as well as my other podcasts as well, uh, Unadulterated Theology on iTunes or wherever else podcasts are available. So God bless you. I don't mean to promote too much, but have a wonderful day or night and see you next time.